Please turn to the book of 1 Samuel. I'll be reading chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. Chapter 8, 4 through 7. Then all the tribes, excuse me, then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Father, grace my lips, grace my body in the midst of the fatigue and sickness it feels. Let it not be a hindrance to the work of Your Holy Spirit in the midst of my teaching. Help me and help them hear what the Spirit speaks to the glory of Jesus. Amen. The concept and the historical reality of Israel having kings, the concept of royalty, the concept of lineage of kings passed down, especially, we will see later, through David, the concept of kingdom, and ultimately the kingdom of God is extremely important to understand in order to understand the whole biblical framework. What's happening in the Old Testament with the kings and the kingdom will eventually lead to the wise men coming to Bethlehem and asking, where is he who was born king There it is, of the Jews? That's coming from somewhere. When the angel came to Mary, the angel said, quote, And the Lord God will give to him this baby Jesus in your womb the throne. Ding, 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 kingdom word. He will give to him the throne of his father, King David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. Jesus preached, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's referring to himself as the king. He admits to Pilate, yes, I am a king. When they crucified him, the inscription over his head read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. The Apostle Paul wrote years later concerning Jesus that, quote, He must reign. Kings do the reigning. He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. And redemptive history itself 
will end, according to the book of Revelation, with such things as this. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. On the day of Pentecost, in that very first quote-unquote Christian sermon, Peter said in chapter 2, verses 29 to 31 of the book of Acts, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. And his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, David the king foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of, that's only a few, these many prophecies and promises. And he has fulfilled it. And He one day will bring that kingdom to its consummation, which is not yet, when He comes back in the clouds of heaven. And since Jesus has been reigning, He has put an end to the succession of kings. He is it. The one through which they all pointed. So, in our journey through biblical history, it's gonna, let's go back, see, in history, where did this begin, this idea of Israel having kings? We have to ask, how did it get started? We have seen God brought His people out of Egypt through the wilderness for 40 years and then over the Jordan into the Promised Land. They conquered the land. Now Joshua and that generation is getting old and they finally die out. It's about 1,375 years B.C. at this point. And then the book of Judges, as we saw last week, opens up with this statement in chapter 2, verse 11. And the people of Israel, after Joshua and the first generation are gone, the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they served the Baals. And we saw that therefore God judged them, and He fought against them. And then they repented. And then God fought for them. And then they fell into idolatry again. And God judged them. The history over the next 300 years from about 375 B.C. to 1050 B.C. is a history of a roller coaster ride for Israel where God would judge their sin and their idolatry and worshiping other gods and forsaking Him until they finally cry out, help us, and He would bring them what is called judges, leaders, rulers, Warriors to battle and fight for them. Judges chapter 2, verses 16 to the first half of verse 19 is a great summary of this long 300-year period that the book of Judges covers. Quote, Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they hoard 
after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and He saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them, and bowing down to them. That's the book of Judges. Right there. And the last verse in the book of Judges ends the book this way. In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then this prophet judge named Samuel, the last judge in the history of Israel, was Samuel. He anointed Saul to be the first king over all Israel. And then after Saul, David. After David, Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom, their own land, independence with a king, split in half. We had the northern kingdom then, and the southern kingdom, each with their own kings. And that lasted for the northern kingdom right around 300 years. After time, after time, after time, the people would not listen to the Word of the Lord through the prophets. And so, in 721 B.C., the Assyrians took the northern kingdom of Israel into captivity, essentially to be obliterated ever since and not know where they are. That was 721 B.C. Another 135 years later, the southern kingdom's sin and rebellion built up so much that God once again now judged them and used the hand of the Babylonians who took them and Jerusalem into captivity and scattered them. That was in 586. B.C. In your Bible, just a real brief overview then. After that's where you're going to get the book of Daniel. You're going to get the book of Esther. You're going to get some of the minor prophets. Then you're going to get 70 years after 586 around there, you're going to get the book of Ezra to be able to come back to the land, permission for the kings who ruled over them that they're subjugated to, to go back into Judea and to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And then you get the book of Nehemiah. We need some protection where they're going to get the permission to build the wall. And there are still prophets in the land. This is all happening now in the late 400s all the way down to about 430 B.C. And that's the end of prophets in the land. That's essentially where our Old Testament canon and God speaking through prophets closes. 430 B.C., think about it. At that time, Western history, over in Athens, Socrates is running around now driving people nuts. After Socrates, around 400, 390, 380, Plato writes, 
Then his student, Aristotle, and Aristotle had a student who became Alexander the Great, who conquered much of the Western world at the time, including this land we've been referring to, Israel, subjugated them in around 337, 335, 333, somewhere around there. And then the next 300 years, differing peoples would get that land, that kind of kingdom rule over it, until finally the Roman Empire, as it's growing and growing and growing in the first century B.C., subjugates that land and our New Testament opens up. Okay, let's go back though again. 1050 B.C., 1st King Saul, to 721, Northern Kingdom gone. To 586, Southern Kingdom gone. This period of time we will be referring to over the next couple of weeks. Now, what I want to do this morning, mainly, it's just this. Let's go back and study and look at the beginning, the origin of the kings of Israel. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 12. In 1 Samuel chapter 12, starting with verse 6 all the way down to verse 25, what we have here is Samuel's speech that he made at Gilgal at the official inauguration of Saul to be the first king. The first thing Samuel says to all the people gathered is he gives them a history lesson. He tells them about all the works and deliverances and the mercies of their God for them and how they as a people were horrible students. Again and again, they would live and act as if they have forgotten all that God had done for them. You look at verse 9 with me. But they, Samuel speaking to the people of Israel about their forefathers, but they forgot the Lord their God, and He sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them. But what we see is one reason God brings such historical judgments is for the purpose to reawaken, to jar them, to come back to repentance and cry out to Him again. And we see it illustrated in verses 10 and 11. And they cried out to the Lord, Samuel said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and served the Baals and the Astaroth. Now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve You in the Lord. Yahweh sent Jeroboam, that's Gideon, and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. He just summed up the last 300 years. And now, we come to verse 12 where we finally reach this pivotal turning point in the history of Israel's leadership. Read it with me. Samuel says, And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, Samuel, No! 
Oh, that's significant word. No! But a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. I'm going to read the verse again. When, after 300 years, time and time again, there was a pattern, God delivering you through judges, now, recently, you're being pummeled by Nahash, the king of the Ammonites. And I, the judge, came to you and you said, no, but a king shall reign over us. Why did they say no? In other words, no to what? Turn back a couple chapters where we began. Chapter 8, verses 4 to 7. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For Samuel, they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. So, on the day of inauguration, when Samuel says, you said, no, but a king shall reign over us, clearly the no that they're saying is, no to God being ruler and king over us. No to this idea of having to be dependent again and again and again on God to fight our battles. No to the idea of being different from the world. No to the idea of being different from all the other nations, quote, but appoint for us a king to judge us like all the other nations have one. This was a great evil. You just got to hear, the text is clear. They're wanting a king. And for the reasons they wanted the king was a great evil. Back to chapter 12. Just follow it. Here is Samuel again. Look at verse 17. Samuel goes on to say, Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain. This is judgment. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. And then in verse 19, the people admit now they're wrong. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God, Samuel, that we may not die, for we have added to all of our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. 
Well, it was Inauguration Day, and God did give them the king. And thus, the history of kingdom rule, royalty within Israel, began. As far as we go today, we're going to delve into kings, especially one extremely important king, the second king, David, for the significance of all of redemptive history and the idea of kingdom in the coming weeks. But this morning I just want to ponder what we have just run across. We're in no hurry. And ponder it most specifically for our own lives, our own faith, our own glorious foundational confidence in this God. What do I mean? Let me summarize what we just saw. Put it this way. Here's the thesis. Even though throughout redemptive history we will see there were some good kings. I named two of my children after them. Their middle names, Justin David and Matthew Josiah. Good kings. God called them did significant work from the foundation of the world. And the greatest king of all comes from this line. His name is Jesus. Even though great good came out of it, here's the truth and the reality. Nevertheless, that kingly line had an evil origin. sin. It was sin. They begged God and God gave in to them. First thing this may, I hope, teaches is that the way we desire something or do something is much more important than the something ultimately. In other words, the way, what's going on in the motive is what in many cases, not every case, in many cases, especially those things where we have no clear instruction in Scripture, many cases, the way you ask for it, that is the reason, the purpose from where it's flowing out of your heart, will determine whether that is a good thing or an evil, wrong. In other words, I doubt that having a king in and of itself was evil. God always purposed to have king. We'll see that in a minute. If they wanted a king not as a replacement for God, but as a, this ruler and a lineage that would go over them who would be servants of God, mediators of God, then I don't think it would have been wrong. If they asked for that out of a heart of reliance and faith, and if it be your will, this seems like a good thing, 
not to kick God off the throne, but a king who would be a mediator of unity for Israel, spirituality, and trust in God, I don't think it would be wrong. It was the way that they asked. It was the motive behind their wanting a king. As God said, they've rejected me. That's why they want an earthly king like all the other nations. So I think that means we ought to watch out in our own lives for statements like, What? It's not wrong to have that, is it? There's no scripture against me doing that. may not be. But we ought to be a little deeper as Christians. Didn't Jesus want to teach us this? You think you just refrain from adultery? And that's it? Outwardly? You've already committed adultery in your heart. And you can go on through all of them. Instead of saying, what? It's okay. Ought you ought not ask, God, am I following Your will for my life at this time in wanting that or buying that or getting that or doing that? For instance, I think in and of itself, Bible teaching is not evil. It might be evil, though, for a person doing it. They might be doing it from a rebellious, sinful, lack of dependence motivation. Or it might be a wonderful, good thing in following God's will and purpose for that Bible teacher at that time. God created marriage. Yes, it's a good thing to have a wife, got a pet, right? And to pursue a spouse at a particular time in one's life may be the leading and the following of the Lord. It might be good. But not necessarily. The desire for a spouse and the purposes and the reasons and the way that one goes about it may be that we can't see, I can, you can't see my heart. It may be, really, an expression of rebellion. And that would make, therefore, that pursuit, as he would say, Wicked. You can go to Calcutta, feed the poor. Church ought to do that. Feeding the poor in Calcutta is in and of itself, without bringing in this why that person is doing it, is a good thing. But, if you go to Calcutta and feed the poor because somehow, deep down in your heart, where God knows every thought, the reason you're doing it is because you think, I'm earning, I'm showing how good I am to Him, I'm getting brownie points, and somehow that has put me in His good graces, then it's wicked. And it's evil. Even though the feeding in and of itself is good. I think that's one thing that Sada teaches. Secondly, the way that God dealt in 1 Samuel chapter 12, His actions in this event show us 
that God's sovereign purposes can and will never be frustrated or defeated. But they will always, His eternal, all-wise, sovereign, king, ruling, reigning, in massive, absolute, ultimate control, His purposes working themselves out were actually fulfilled in what we read. Even though it came about by the sins of the people. Turn to Deuteronomy for a second. Hundreds of years earlier, in Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, God not only predicted that Israel would demand a king, but He gave them instructions that when that time comes, on how to get a king and how to choose a king. Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 15, hundreds of years before, it says, quote, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. So when we come to hundred years later, to 1 Samuel, this rise of royalty, the kings in Israel, was no surprise or detour to God. He planned it ages before. And yet, the way it came about was through sin. Just like the cross. God purposed and planned to save many through a Roman cross. A bloody Roman cross that His eternal Son would die on. Purposed it, he planned it before he ever created the world. And yet, the only way, well, I don't need to say it that way, the way that that came about was through sin. It was sin for Judas to betray Jesus. It was sin for Pilate to be milk toast. It was sin for the Sanhedrin and those crying out, crucify him. And that was, on another level, God's perfect purpose and plan. Just logic tells you that. But if you want to go just further, the Bible just makes it crystal clear. Book of Acts, Peter's clear. This Jesus, whom you killed through the hands of sinful men, was predetermined and foreknown by God. It's the way the Bible talks. Or, another example, 
Joseph, one of the twelve sons of Jacob, was sold into slavery by his eleven, well, ten brothers. They meant it for evil. They were evil in doing it. They will be judged for it. They're not off the hook for it. It was a bad thing with bad motives. And yet at the end of the book of Genesis, it's made clear with a statement from or that we radically worldly-eyed, man-centered people have no category in our minds for. That you, my brothers, meant selling me into slavery. You meant it for evil. But, God meant the same act for good. If you say, I hear that, but I can't totally get all my fingers around it all. Welcome to being a finite creature. But don't let your finiteness cause you to spurn God in His revealed will, purposes, in way. But ultimately, why am I saying this is a lesson? There is a place to come, dear Christian, where knowing that is the God with whom we deal. But not just that, because He was a judge over me for just eternal wrath, but He brought me into Christ, and now I'm His child, and lo and behold, the world still filled with all kinds of hellish, miserable experiences. To know that that is the God who is so truly sovereign over every detail of my life is so comforting. It's a place that God wants to bring all His children to know and experience those deep theological truths as the foundation of your comfort and joy and trust and depth with Him. I want to put a big parenthesis in here. I just say parenthesis because it deserves five sermons. and We have discussed it in this church before, but I want to just appeal to some extended quotes from Jonathan Edwards who was one of the main means. It was so helpful for me in the early 1990s because when I would hear such things for the first time, man. Ultimately, though, I'm going to appeal to Edwards to you as he was so helpful to me to say, that would work. I think what I'm going to read here works. For instance, in other words, having said what I just said, here's the question. I've encountered it in my life as a teacher much. But then are you saying that God sins against me? Or God sinned because you're saying He was ultimately in control of the installing Saul, giving the wish of sinful creatures? Edwards answers that question this way. Edwards, 300 years ago, 
pastor, theologian, New England. If by, quote, the author of sin, you mean the sinner, is God the sinner, the agent or the actor of sin, or the doer, is God the doer of the wicked thing, it would be a reproach and a blasphemy to suppose God to be the author of sin in that way. In this sense, Edward says, I utterly deny God to be the author of sin. But then now Edwards goes on and argues that, quote, willing that sin exists in the world is not the same thing as sinning. God does not commit sin in willing that there be sin. God is, Edwards goes on, God is the permitter of sin and at the same time a disposer of the state of events in such a manner for wise and holy and most excellent ends and purposes that sin, if it be permitted, will most certainly and infallibly follow. In other words, that sin, if permitted, is because in His wise and holy things, from a way that you as a finite being cannot know, as an unholy sinful creature cannot know, he's saying, that from God's perfection and eternality and absolute wisdom and the personification of righteousness and holiness, good in His glory, which is the most good of all, will flow if He so desired or willed in any way that sin be. In other words, there is a sense in which God wills what He hates to come to pass. Red light. Edwards, again, quote, God may hate a thing as it is in itself. Stop. He hated Judas's betrayal. He hated Israel's desire to have a king reign over them in that instance with Samuel. God may hate a thing as it is in itself and considered simply as an evil in itself, which it is in and of itself, and yet it may be His will it should come to pass. Considering all the consequences, stop, like the cross, I'm happy for the cross. that it may be His will it should come to pass considering all the consequences. God doesn't will sin as sin 
or for the sake of anything evil, even though it be His pleasure to do, excuse me, His pleasure so to order things that He permitting it, sin will come to pass for the sake of the good that by His disposal or willing it shall be the outcome or the consequence. God's willing to order things so that evil should come to pass for the sake of the contrary good is no argument that He doesn't hate evil as evil. And if so, then it is no reason why He may not reasonably forbid evil as evil and punish it as such. God forbade the attitude of Israel in wanting to reject Him. He's against it. He is against Judas betraying the eternal Son of God. He is against it. He is against those who lied in Jesus' trial for the purpose to put Him to death. He's against it. That's what He's saying. But, you're not God. He's sovereign. And He knows what He's doing. As He flows throughout the Bible. He knows what he's doing. The reason why, what we've run across this morning, I spent these ten minutes on it, to, 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 to deal with this question and to not ignore it as a Christian, I think is demanded of us believers. Or else, what are you going to do with this book besides just profess? I believe it all. Well, that shows to the extent we read it. And take it in its context all over the place for what it's saying and try to wrestle with God over it in our lives and our pain. In other words, these fundamental truths in these last ten minutes help us explain some very perplexing things that we run across all over the Bible. That God, in His revealed will, says, I hate this, I forbid this, and don't do this. And then, not from His revealed will, but His sovereign, hidden to your eyes will, sovereignly allows it. If we do not have that as a basic category, how are you going to make sense of stuff like God opposes the hatred of His people, yet He ordains that His people be hated. His ordaining brings it about when the text says very clearly, quote, He, God, turned their hearts to hate His people in Egypt. God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Old Testament, New Testament. But God commands Pharaoh, let my people go. My will for you, creature, let them go. 
sovereign will, He hardens their heart. He makes it very plain in the text of Scripture to King David that it would be sin for him to take a military census. But then the text makes it clear that God ordains that he does it. He makes it clear that the reason Israel wanted a king in Samuel's day was sin, wickedness, and evil. Yet he ultimately ordained it. As far as I'll go this morning. What comes out of that I have found is the deepest comfort I can have as a Christian. I don't know what lay ahead for me. But it's not merely that. I want you to hear this. Fellow believer, sojourner, sinner, saint, that not only the stuff you have no control over, but the stuff that has come your way because of you, because of your sin. If you belong to Christ, if He is yours, when Paul, by the Holy Spirit, teaches us that God causes all things to work together for good in Romans 8.28. I'm going to turn. I just want to see those precious words again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose, He means all things. which is very comforting to me. Christians don't have a biblical foundation to stand on in the sense of living in regret. Also, believers, we do not have to freak out about every little decision. Oh, we pray for wisdom, we want wisdom, but then it's this. Those who love God, the call of his purpose, you want to boil Christianity and faith down? That's it. You don't have a thousand different categories. Pursue Him. Love Him. Find Him as your treasure. Walk with Him. Sinner! And I promise you will sin in doing it. And I promise you will make mistakes that you will suffer the consequences for. He's sovereign even over that. Because you know you love Him. You say, I'm one of those. That's the only big key. Am I one? And if so, when you say, look at me at this time of my life, why am I here when I would have been there? I know why. I turned left. I should have turned right. Now I'm here. No, you're exactly where God wants you. And it's for your good if you're a believer. Eternal good. And I find that really comforting. The third 
thing is we're going to come to a close here. That we learn from the way that God dealt with Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 12 is just that. Whatever situation you find yourself in, and you even find it irreversible, and it came about because of your sin. You don't need to be paralyzed by guilt and regret. Back to chapter 12, 1 Samuel, verse verse 19, quote, And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. That's it. Constantly, when you sin, you're guilty, not God. You come to repentance. You let yourself be humbled by your sinful arrogance. And then listen to what Samuel says in verse 20. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid you have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside now from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. Y'all know what I'm talking about here. You have done it, and you run across other believers who do it, and sometimes we understand how difficult it can be getting over regret. But, this, if, there is no biblical ground for any Christian person to ever say, I have blown it too big. I have gone too far. There's no way God can forgive me now. There's no way that Christ Jesus could bear this much. Don't ever let the devil cause you to be paralyzed by that arrogant, sinful, ongoing guilt after you have confessed and come to trust again in Him. Even though Israel sinned greatly, even though you may sin greatly and turn away from the Lord, there is in turning back absolute cleansing and forgiveness. The final thing that comes out of this text is to ask this question now. Take everything I've said here in application last 20 minutes. What in the world is all of that grounded on? Is God that forgiving? Is that sovereign God that forgiving? The basis in our text again today, is the same basis we have seen for the last 23 weeks in this journey through biblical history. Again and again and again and again and again. Let me say what it's not. The basis, this is so wonderful again to a sinner like me, is not me. And it's not you. And the basis is not even my faith. It's deeper than 
than that. Verse 22. Samuel says, For the Lord. They've repented now, right? They've sinned, they repented. And now, for the Lord will not forsake His people. That's what I want. Why? Because of His great name's sake. Because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. That's why. You've come to Christ. He's your treasure. The hearing of the Gospel is constantly sweet to you. You know He's real. I talked to someone recently whom I've known for many years. He's feeling like he's going out of his mind. He doesn't know in any type of presence way right now whether God even exists. I don't doubt this person's salvation. truth is what is going to ultimately and by God's grace set him free. It's not based on what you feel, what you think, what you have done, how you're coming to grips with things that you have even hidden from your own self-consciousness and you're overwhelmed. It's founded on Christ because God chose you, dear friend, to make a name for Himself. And He will do it. And the ground of mercy thus is God's unswerving, unwavering commitment to preserve and display His glory. The more you get a hold of that in your darkest hour, in your guilt-ridden end, you ought to be, you are guilty. And you feel it. And then you read 1 John. What you want under that is to know why confess your sin and He's faithful and righteous to forgive you. You want to know it. Because every feeling in your mind, in your emotions, in your body will scream against what God has taught you. You want to rest it on Him, His truth, knowing you. As as much as you hate, dislike that sin of mine, you've called. No, that's true. 
And you infinitely love the display of your name and glory in forgiving me that sin. When you can get that, when we can get that, have the mercy of God to get that, how wonderful that prayer, that repentance will be. The Father, our Father, His message to His children is constantly, fear not, repentant sinner who look for hope. Because I love My name and I will honor My name and all who lean upon it. No wonder the Apostle John said by the Holy Spirit in 1 John 2.12, Christian, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. So let us cloak ourselves. Let's take this time as we pour out our hearts in worship again. Open up your hearts. Open up areas you don't want them open up or haven't wanted them to. To the mercy and the grace of God. And as we cloak ourselves in the person of Christ and in the name of Jesus who will guard us forever and ever and ever. Father, I now ask You to continue to do this work upon us, Your people, here this morning. Glorify the name of Your Son. Glorify the name of Your Son in our tears, in our joy, in our pouring out our hearts. Father, empower us by Your Spirit to taste and see afresh and deeper than ever before the foundation of our eternal life, joy, forgiveness, righteousness, justification, that it's rested upon You. For You have ordained to make every one of Your children whom You've called by Your name a display of Your infinite and eternal glory in Jesus Christ. Amen.